You're listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you by Timeform, the Racehorse Owners Association, and the racing app in partnership with Fitzdevs. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Monday, the 5th of February. Lots upon which to reflect through the next 40, 45 minutes or so. But we cannot start this program in any other way than to remember the life of Keegan Kirby, point to point rider and long time important member of Paul Nichols' staff, who died yesterday at the age of 25 in a point to point race at Charing. Paul Nichols, 14 times champion trainer and Keegan's boss, said life is so hard sometimes, winners totally insignificant compared to what has happened. Sadly, Keegan, one of our best hard-working lads, lost his life today riding in a point-to-point. All of us at Team Ditchit are mortified. Our thoughts are with his friends and his family. According to the Injured Jockeys Fund, the incident occurred on the second circuit of the final race when Keegan's mount ran out through the wing of a fence and there was immediate attention from the on-course medical team, as well as additional support from a 999 helicopter crew. Tragically, he was unable to be saved. Uh, Keegan was also shortlisted for the Thoroughbred Industry Employee Awards in the Rider Groom category for this year. The British Horse Racing Authority Chief Executive Julia Harrington said, We are devastated to hear the tragic news regarding the fatal injuries sustained by Keegan. Our thoughts are with his family and friends and everyone at Paul Nichols Stable. The entire racing industry will be in mourning at the loss of someone so young, and with such potential. And I'm joined this morning by David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror. The news in this sport, David, that we all fear and dread and sometimes have to come to terms with. Indeed, and, and that um, we know is a is a constant danger. Um, it's it's a, a heartbreaking happening. This, the, the, the news came through last evening uh, of Keegan's death, a young man, 25, pursuing his love. We know that that love can and often is extremely dangerous, and and that's how it's proved. The IJF speak of of Keegan being um, shortlisted for the the Thoroughbred Industry Employee Awards uh, for 2024, and obviously being a, a, a respected and, and valued member of the Paul Nichols team at Ditchit. You know, there's. There's not really very much of of great meaning that a, a talking head like me can say, except to to say that our thoughts are with his loved ones at, at this awful time. At the beginning of January, Keegan spoke to Ben Atkins and Sam Davis Thomas on their Pointing Pointers podcast, and this short clip tells you quite a lot about his life and his loves. So I work full time for champion trainer Paul Nichols. I'm very lucky to have a very good job here. Um, growing up, none of my family were ever involved with racing, but both my grandparents loved watching the race, and I always enjoyed watching the race, and always wanted to be a jockey growing up. It wasn't easy. Um, I was actually a young carer from my mum the whole time. Um, it's kind of made me who I am, if I'm honest. Um, and obviously went to racing school after um, school, ended up uh, working for Jeremy Scott for three years first, and it was kind of down there is where I started my point-to-pointing. It took a long time to get going, really. It was only last season, first winner last season, and Paul got actually then 
got me on the uh, tour of Rob Warren's Oldington and ends up with another spare and obviously all went and won that day and have kind of kicked off from there. Um, I might be at Hampton next weekend, I'm not 100% sure. If not, it'll be Cocklebarrow the weekend after that. And just keep plugging away, really. The voice of Keegan Kirby, who died yesterday at Charing Point to Point course at the age of 25. The weekend's action was dominated by the Dublin Racing Festival. And for all that we may have predicted a Willie Mullins fest going into the weekend, I'm not sure we could have quite imagined the extent of his dominance. Any pretenders to challenging it were snuffed out pretty readily. And Mullins took all eight Grade 1 races, enhanced his claims for some Cheltenham Festival races, but perhaps diminished, ironically, his claims in one or two others. We'll discuss that in a few moments' time with his assistant trainer, David Casey, who's really quite interesting in a spirited canter through some of the horses' performances over the weekend, both good ones and less good ones. Seems an extraordinary thing to say when you've won all great ones, doesn't it? Eight great ones, doesn't it? But David Yates with me now um, can put some numerical context to this. Yeah, I, I don't think anything like this has been achieved in our particular uh, sphere of horse racing. As I've been recovering from a double hernia operation, Nick, I, I've had the chance uh, unusually to crunch a few numbers with regard to this eight-timer. And in terms of... The, the actual likelihood of William Mullins winning eight races with one of his 29 of the 48 runners to contest the eight grade ones, it's not that astonishing. Um, try to keep awake. I'll just take you through some numbers. The implied probability of his winning uh, these races, i.e. The, the aggregate odds of the runners that he's fielded, um, well, he had... Four out of six runners of the Nathaniel Lacey, the two-mile and the six-novice hurdle. Uh, six out of the 11 of the Spring Juvenile hurdle on the Saturday. Three out of the six of the Irish Arkle and two out of four of the Irish Gold Cup. Um, he had an implied probability of 82, sorry, 80.2% of winning the Nathaniel Lacey and partners. 91.8% of winning the Spring Juvenile hurdle. The Irish Arkle looked like being a stumbling block because, of course, Marina Nacional was the 74 on favourite. Mullins had a mere 37.2% chance of winning that. But once that was in the bag, um, he had an 81.7% chance of winning the Irish Gold Cup. Moving into the Sunday, uh, obviously there was a match of Clasutton runners for the Labrooks Novice Chase, 103.6%, but he had both runners anyway. Um, then uh, five out of 10, again, that was a possible banana skin in the Tattersall's Ireland novice hurdle but of course Ballyburn won that impressively uh, 5 out of 10 for that, 4 out of 5 for the Dublin Chase and 3 out of 4 for the Irish Champion hurdle so again the numbers there, um, 103.6 I've mentioned, 74.3% chance of winning the Tassels Island Novice Hurdle, 104.8% of winning the uh, Dublin Chase, Captain Guinness, of course, the only interloper there, and 97 
0.9% chance of winning the Irish champion hurdle. Bob Ollinger, the only non-Clusterton representative. So those those are the numbers. Um, the eight-timer was achieved at odds of 6,504 to 1. Um, if you put a string of eight... Uh, coin flips, even money shots together, that would come out at 255 to 1. Only four of the 29 Clasutton representatives in the grade ones were 33% or bigger. So the the actual likelihood of winning uh, those eight races this weekend with the runners that he saddled is not as astonishing as it might seem. The trick, of course, is to manoeuvre yourself into such a position of dominance uh, that you're able to field 29 of the 48. And that is a, a trick that Willie Mullins has pulled off to some tune. Uh, I've, I've channeled my inner... Carol Vorderman there. Lucky, I, I hope I find you still awake. Uh, yes, I'm very much still awake, and uh, I enjoyed that. And now it's time to try and assess what those horses may go on to achieve, having done what they've done over the weekend. And to do that, I've enlisted the help of David Casey, longtime assistant to Willie Mullins. And as I spoke to him this morning, the cockerel was crowing in the yard at Close Sutton, and I asked him really whether that was emblematic of the mood around the place. Yeah, no, obviously it was a great weekend, uh, Nick, you know, um, obviously plenty of winners and, and most of the horses run well, so um, yeah, everybody's uh, a bit uplifted this morning. Yeah, I suppose the key questions out of a weekend, which is kind of unusual insofar as the, the stable's so dominant numerically in every one of these grade ones, is what did you expect to happen and what didn't you expect to happen? Was there anything that genuinely confounded you over the two days? Uh, not a lot. Of, obviously, there was, there was a couple of surprises maybe on Saturday uh, that we probably didn't expect to win. Maybe um, I think something like Dancing City was a twenty to one shot or something. I think you know. So um, we probably wouldn't have definitely been first choice. Maybe you know. So and um, and obviously in a hey, Tom's you, you probably weren't expecting Marine National to blow out as much. You know. You know. So um, little things like that. But generally, generally, most of it went as as we kind of hoped it would. You know. I wanted to just pick up a couple of points on yesterday. Um, State man's win uh, was achieved in a slower time than Bally Burns. To what extent do you think that that was because Ampere Pass just looked like the most reluctant leader of all time? Yeah, I'd I say that that has a lot to do with it. I think Daryl was keen to, to try something different on Ampere Pass. Paul said it didn't really matter. He was going to ride his horse, whatever, you know, um, whatever the situation was. And I, I'd say that just had a lot to do with it. Um, with Bally Byrne, obviously he's a strong stayer, so I'd say Paul was never going to go a canter on him, um, and there was not obviously another horse to, to, to lead him, didn't they? So it looked like they went to good gallop, and to say Imperial Pass was just very idle in front. I'd say that was more more to do with it than anything else, you know. Do you think it matters what race Bally Byrne runs in at the at the festival, whether it's two miles or two and a half miles? Could he do either? Um, I probably would have always had him down, maybe as more of a two and a half mile horse. Um, until yesterday, maybe. Um, I thought he was very impressive yesterday, and I think he's the more racing he's getting, the sharper he's probably getting as well. So um, you'd, you'd hope, looking at yesterday, that he'd be competitive in whichever race he ran in, you know? As for State Man, um, Willie was, you know, doffed his cap and said, I just hope that I can get closer to Constitution Hill. Is there anything that you've seen that makes you feel that your horse is a better horse this year, at home or otherwise? Uh, I thought. Definitely, I, th I thought the last day in at Christmas, I thought it was. I thought to me it was the first time this year. I thought, yeah, he looks a, he looks 
maybe better than he was last year, you know. Um, and Paul, I think, thought the same. Listen, everybody, every horse has to go and turn up on a day in, in good form and, and see how you get on, you know. So, um, obviously, we're delighted that he went and won again yesterday. Um, I think he beat a horse like Bob Ollinger, who seems to be improving hugely again this season. Um, so I think the form is, is was strong enough. But say if we if we get there in, in good form, um, the way he has been for the last while, then you never know what can happen on any given day. You know, it could be a seriously small field as well. I mean, there's really not many takers for it. Would you give up on Ampere Pass as a champion hurdle project now or not? Uh, I, I don't think so. As I said, I just don't think it suited him yesterday. Uh, the, the way the race was was run, I think he's definitely probably better with a lead. Ideally, I'd imagine he's probably a better horse over two and a half, and uh, maybe something like the entry hurdle might 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 be the ideal race for him. But he is still a very very high class horse. Wanted to just touch on El Fabiolo. Is there much to say other than he's much better than those others of yours, and much better than most of the others anywhere? I would I would think so. Yes, um, he was pretty straightforward yesterday. Uh, did as I say we'd hoped he'd do and you know he's he's just yeah he's, he's just better than those isn't he at the moment anyway so um, all, all is good with him yeah and let's just talk about the juvenile hurdlers if we can you had the first four home in that race is that the accurate reflection of where they're likely to finish say in a triumph hurdle or do you think there's more improvement in one or two of the ones in behind I'm thinking particularly about Marjborough yeah, well, actually speaking to Paul last during the week, um, when we were talking about what he was going to ride and different that, and it was kind of the one race I kind of said to him that I, I couldn't guarantee that he was on the right one, you know. Um, we had four or five there, three of them, had, I think, or four of them had only one maidens, so it was hard to get a gauge on them, you know, how good they were, and we thought they were all very, very decent horses, um, but weren't sure which way they'd go, and as it turned out, the filly that won Cargis probably had the strongest form. She was second, an unlucky second, I thought, at Christmas after running very keen. Um, but she had all the experience and she had she's had four runs now, I think. I think she had three or four in France, you know, as well. So she had all the experience, whereas the likes of Stormheart, Marjbrand, and Bunting even, they, they'd only had one run. I think they'd improved plenty um, just for the actual experience of, of going around in, in our rests like that, you know. Who's your number one hope for the Arkle now? Uh, <laughs> that's a tricky one, isn't it? Gaelic warrior, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, obviously, Ilite Thomas is a Grade One winning two mile hurdler, and he's now Grade One winning two mile chaser. So, um, but I think it it kind of blew the race open completely, didn't it? Um, on, on Saturday, so um, it's it's a wide open contest. So it brought, I'd say, it's bringing horses into the race that maybe you wouldn't have thought on Friday morning maybe that, that we're, could get involved, you know. And fact to file, Gaelic Warrior, uh, Facile Vega, how do you play all those cards now, do you think? Oh, sure, listen, that'll all be decided in the next few weeks. we let it die down for a bit and um, let them get over the races this weekend and build them back up and see much closer to time what's going how well everybody's going and what's sure. going there, what's going sharper, you know, that kind of way. So. Do you think it was more than just the right-handed thing with Ga- Gaelic Warrior, right-handed, left-handed thing? He didn't He didn't look quite right from a long way out. Yeah, I, I thought everything looked happier until he made that genuflection at the back of the fourth last. Um, and after that, then, it, it looked as if your man had taken the initiative and um, whether the horse kind of just felt something or what, I don't know exactly, but he seems fine 
this morning and after the race. So, but uh, yeah, I actually did the right-handed thing to me. I know he jumped right at a couple, but I thought he jumped pretty straight at a good few, you know. So, and um, I thought actually, in fact, the file jumped nearly more right than, than Kelly Warrior did at a few. So, um, I, I think it was. I think that wasn't it anyway. Yeah. And in fact, file might be your next Gold Cup horse. The current one is obviously Galapande Sean. Thoughts on that over and above what's already been said? Yeah, I thought he was very impressive again. Um, I'd say the fact that he was in front, I'd say he was a little bit idle. I'd say they didn't go as strong as they did at Christmas. And I'd say um, that's why the field was more compact. But I think Paul was happy everywhere. He jumped really, really well. And, you know, I think it was where they probably got racing a little bit earlier at Christmas. I'd say it turned into a small bit more of a sprint. But, um, you know, he was he was in good form going there. I thought, he, I thought he was very impressive. Who's his biggest danger in the Gold Cup, do you think? Ooh, hard to know. You, um, you could maybe say the horse that was second on on Saturday faster slow, but then he, he's in the rain there as well. But he looked tailor made for that. Actually, the rain there would be very hard to beat in that if he pitched up there. But um, this night, I know there'll be plenty of horses there to take him on again. I'm sure. Um, sure, all we can do is go and try and get him there in the same form and and see how he gets on. You know, David. Thanks for your time this morning. No, but I need to talk to you soon. Cheers. All right, that was David Casey. Some interesting stuff in there, David Yates. It was a, a canter through, but uh, I thought we got quite a few little nuggets. It was um, a very informative canter. Go on. What, what what interested you most? My ears pricked up towards the end. Uh, the Galapin des Champs and Fast or Slow uh, with uh, David Casey saying that the... Uh, the Ryanair chase looks absolutely tailor-made for fast or slow. Um, it reminded me of a, a, an, a, an unfortunate episode of my early years as an undergraduate in 1988 when my best friend, David Ashby, knew of my affections uh, for one of our fellow students. And um, he pointed me in the direction of another uh, undergraduate whom he said was uh, was a, a better target for me she was keen and to his credit he proved he was proved absolutely right uh, and we got together but it cleared the path for David Ashby uh, to uh, pursue his own uh, pursuit you. of the first uh, one that I'd mentioned and they got together it may well have been that if there'd been a, a love match he would have won that one too but he got me out of the way and in similar vein uh, David Casey seems to be steering the uh, connections of fast or slow to the Ryanair route. It may well be that if they lock horns, then uh, Galapin Deschamps is the more likely winner. Anyway, he's certainly a, a more strong, a stronger stayer, Nick, over the extended three and a quarter miles. Although the negative side is that he was allowed to boss that race on Saturday and he won't be able to do that at Cheltenham in March, which, which were the 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 of the the fluctuations in the market uh, that those performances triggered over the weekend which, which were the ones that caught your eye because i know there's one uh, very much in my mind which i'll come to in a second well i thought most were fairly predictable i i think if you were saying well how on earth could you shorten that then you could have said well Gaelic Warrior didn't turn up in his match against Stable Companion Fact to File. So how can Fact to File's price be cut for all the races that he's eligible for at the Cheltenham Festival when effectively all he's done is pootle round and his only other rival has clearly underperformed, as David Casey um, intimated there when he said he genuflected at the fourth last. 
Um, but having said that, my regard for Factor File is so high that I think I probably would have had him shorter anyway. Yeah, there, there's no doubt though that if if a if a horse is uh, shortened from ten to one to six to four for any race, you think that's triggered by a pretty seismic performance, don't you? Rather than just finishing alone when the other horse didn't turn up and mathematically i get it the bookmakers have pushed gaelic warrior out from generally a shade of odds on to as big as seven to one for the turner's novices chase you couldn't back him with sextons for that race or any other could you really on the uh, at cheltenham on the strength of 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 that performance but I, I thought that was a bit weird, really. You know, the other horse didn't finish and was well beaten when coming down at the final fence. And I, I could see why they, they shortened factor file, but 10 to 1 from 6 to 4, I thought was maybe overdoing it. Yeah. Um, and a measure, a measure, David, of the extent to which Gaelic Warrior clearly underperformed was the fact that Casey, even though he was half joking, still said, well, he might be our best chance in the Arkle. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? It's, a, you know, probably won't run him there, but you know what, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, but uh, it was a, it was a non-event, and you know he's shortened factor factor file has has shortened significantly on the back of that. Um, I thought Bally Byrne was the star of the show yesterday. Of those four, um, the uh, the way that that he runs, I, I like the way that Justin O'Hanlon described that in the analysis in the Racing Post, which was a concussive way of galloping. I wrote bludgeonous, but then I I deleted it because I looked up bludgeonous and it, it seemed that it wasn't a word. But it's the same sort of thing. Uh, it's relentless. He pours it on. Um, but yesterday um, he was able to pour it on at two miles, and so that's a difficulty for anti-post punters. But Ballyburn looks a star of the future. Um, elsewhere, El Fabiolo did what we expected, didn't he? Um, he went right. He doesn't show the um, the complete respect for his fences. He doesn't jump with impressive polish, as he didn't in the the, the Irish Arkle 12 months earlier. But uh, I think the most significant race with regard to the outcome of the Queen Mother Champion Chase of 2024 was the restaged running of the Clarence House Chase. Jean Bon has had three career defeats and they've all been in grade one races at Cheltenham. I put it to Nicky Henderson in the aftermath of that defeat that maybe wasn't Chel maybe Cheltenham wasn't Jean Bon's place and he batted that back at me, but I still think there's a bit of um, water in that theory. State man again, he was excellent. He's now won eight grade ones. His only defeat when he stayed on all fours uh, for Willie Mullins was when he was beaten by Constitution Hill in the champion last March. But we know that... Um, Constitution Hill is going to be waiting for him again. Uh, where will we go with Ampere Pass now? I don't really know. Uh, he seems to be at something of a crossroads. He does, but they're, they're, leading on from that, you've got a situation where you could have almost a match in the champion hurdle. I mean, Constitution Hill and Stateman, beyond that, what's going to turn up? Lossy Mouth's not. We presume Vauban's not. I mean, the cupboard is bare. Not so sleepy fans will be saying, well, not so sleepy will tell me, well, you know what? If he does, good on them. Because they probably get third prize money at the very worst at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we look at the mares, the the, the likes of uh, of Lossy Mouth, of uh, Gala Marceau, Lucia, um, Love Envoi, 
and Echo, well, Echoes in Rain might well run, but certainly the, the first ones that I've mentioned would probably go to the mayor's Burdett Roads in the Antipost market, and that would be unlikely. It, it's interesting, this. I think we're going to have a very small field. I suspect that Nicky Henderson is going to put his entries elsewhere. Willie Mullins, we'll see. He did say at Leopardstown yesterday that it's not his way to to flood a race and, and try and do it the dick dastardly way by uh, locking Constitution Hill up in a cell that he can't escape from uh, on the way around. And I, and I, I believe that 100%. Um, I don't think that's uh, his way of operating and I don't think he'll do that. But yeah, just looking through it, that you know, you go through each one and you say, no, no, not really, possibly. But, you know, if we had, well, if we had six runners for the race, I think we'd be relieved and pleasantly surprised, wouldn't we? Should we talk about some of the racing at Sandown Park over the weekend, particularly the Grade 1 Silly Isles Chase, in which we lost a very good horse in MS Allen, which was terribly sad. That was at the second last fence. The victory of Nickelback was... Uh, by contrast, really a heartwarming one and a notable blow for the smaller stable of Sarah Humphrey and a very popular triumph for jockey James Best. The horse won't go to Cheltenham. He'll go to Aintree instead for the Manifesto Novices Chase. But David, this was very much one to enjoy in the moment if you were able to, given what had happened to uh, MS Allen two out. It really was. And obviously there was a... Uh, uh, from From the moment that Nickelback past the post there was the spectre that all probably wasn't well with Hermes Allen and I'm afraid that came to pass and and that was a a really sorry postscript to this race the winner was absolutely exemplary at the head of affairs he was clear and watching it you kept thinking or I kept thinking well surely he's going to come back to them there must be a reckoning and and that reckoning uh will uh, be when he's probably halfway up the Sandown Hill, but Nickelback kept going. He was a, a poetry in motion at the at the railway fences, which are, are such a, a a stern test of a steeplechaser. And it was it was heartwarming to see. Um, it was a, a, a landmark result for Sarah Humphrey and James Best. And I know that I'm somebody who bores NLD listeners senseless with his moaning about how the the big prizes go into such a small number of hands these days and this was a departure uh, from that a horse that as you say won't go to Cheltenham Festival will go into to Aintree but this was about today this wasn't about a race meeting that is happening in a few weeks time this was about the moment um it was a it had a, as I say a very sad postscript with the loss of Hermes, Hermes Allen uh, in terms of Nickelback it was a, a a signature victory for the owner, the trainer and the jockey. And just watching it was a, a, a joy to behold. So with all that in mind and that counterpoint between the Sarah Humphrey James best winner of the grade one at Sandown and the Mullins eight timer in the grade one's dominance at, um, at Leopardstown, at what point do, does the worry, which already exists, really intensify as regards whether a Dublin Racing Festival scenario could be manifest just as readily at Cheltenham. We already talked about the likelihood of a very small field, for example, in the champion hurdle and one in the champion chase and hardly any from different stables. And also, to what extent does the Dublin Racing Festival worry, uh, if it's not already, about how much betting turnover is going to be affected by so many runners 
from one stable dominating the grade ones yeah well the worry is certainly there in both cases i, I think it's it's clearer uh, for, for the dublin racing festival in terms of turnover it's going to get what, 20,000 visitors per day? That's not a massive surprise. Um, certainly in terms of the Brits going, it's a wonderful place to go, Dublin, for the weekend. Leopardstown is a wonderful track. It's it's. I've only missed one until uh, this week, and that was the COVID um, DRF. And it's, it's almost the, the first one I put in my diary. I absolutely love going there. But when there is one stable that is dominant to the extent that... Uh, William Mullins is there's going to be a, a lack of or, or there's going to be a, I think a, a decrease in the interest I'm not talking about integrity I think we all accept that those horses run on their merits uh, that they're running for different owners um etc etc and you only have to look at the, uh, the 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 SPs of of the eight winners to realize that you know there's no cooked up result that's preordained in terms of the Clasutton representatives let me say that firmly um but in terms of i think interest in the sport every sport has an interest a human interest that is part of its appeal particularly those sports where animals involved because greyhounds and horses can't talk and so inevitably part of the stories you you go up to the trainer and jockey and for want of a, a more imaginative line of questioning say how do you feel and if that trainer has won the previous six grade one races at the meeting and they've just won the seventh well it's, they're going to tell you pretty much the same as i felt when you asked me that question uh the previous six times um so i think there is the law of diminishing returns there in in my, my recollection i haven't crunch the numbers for this but my my feeling with the dublin racing festival is that that mullins domination has really the, the curve has steepened over the last two or three years and that's about to happen i suspect at cheltenham too and so it is a worry it's a worry for jump racing it's a worry for flat racing when you have uh say seven out of 12 or seven out of 13 aiden o'brien runners in the derby i attach no blame to those trainers who are successful in their in their chosen trade to the point that they're able to dominate dominate those bet those uh, the best races but it is a worry um i find it a worry myself i've worked in racing for 35 years and if i find it a worry then surely it would also be a concern when we're trying to get floating voters into the sport is the sport more or less interesting for being dominated by a small number of names i, I don't think i need to give the answer to that and before we move on, in addition to MS Allen, who we mentioned a few moments ago, ought to also mention Absolute Notions and Get a Gin, two very talented young horses whose lives were cut short at Musselburgh yesterday. Uh, one horse who lived a, a long and really important existence was uh, Hardy Eustace, the dual champion hurdle winner. He'd won the two-and-a-half-mile novice hurdle at the Cheltenham Festival the previous year under his then-rider, Kieran Kelly, who himself was tragically killed in a fall. Uh, the ride was then taken over by Conor O'Dwyer, who won two champion hurdles on him and many, many more races and engaged in some epic battles with some wonderful horses of the era. And 27 years old, Hardy Eustace passed away yesterday at the Ar Irish National Stud. Um, Conor O'Dwyer joins me now. Uh, he had a very special place in my heart, uh, and I'm sure... Uh, uh, an extraordinarily special place uh, in yours, Connor. 
Absolutely, Nick. Huge. Um, he was a well, as you said, f- from the start to to you know have gotten the right on him the way I did. Uh, losing Kieran was was you know that's an, an emotional start really. Um, <clears throat> but the horse himself, like he was just. Um, such a, a warrior, really. Like he, he wasn't flashy, he wasn't um, stand out. But every day at the at the line, he was there to be counted for. He was a he's an, he was an amazing horse. He really was. He had forty eight runs in his life as well. And you know, we speak now about how rarely we see good horses. He didn't miss much, did he? He surely didn't. Well, if you compare him to Constitution Hill, I suppose at the moment, he, runs wise, he's, he's he's well ahead. But no, he didn't, and he turned up every day really. Um, and he was a sound horse, and like obviously Desi, late great Desi, Hughes did an amazing job with him. And uh, as you said, like you know, forty-eight runs, it it takes doing, like no matter what. And he was there, as I said, every day, and. Um, you know, he, he gave his all every day. He was a, he was a, he was an unbelievable horse. He really was. Now, I probably don't need to remind you. Your first sit on him at Navin, you got beaten at four to one on, and then four runs later, after another few defeats, you were winning the Champion Hurdle at thirty three to one. Um, what changed, and how did it all turn around? Yeah, it wasn't the, it wasn't the ideal start. It wasn't the start we were looking for anyway. Um, look, I, I don't know. Um, Desi was um, a quiet man. He he wouldn't show his hand too much, and he'd only tell you what you needed to know, really. So you know, I, I'm sure he expected to win in Avon, all right. But Desi would have, you know, had really Cheltenham in his mind um, for him. Um, so you know he did progress along the way, and it's not as though we needed to know him. The horse he he, he was straightforward, really. So um, the only thing that changed, I suppose, along the way was at one stage Desi was was really talking about the coral hurdle for him, which I thought was perfect, and I thought this would be a, a, a winner in in Cheltenham for me. And literally a week beforehand, Desi Desi rang to say, look, he said we're going to have a crack at a champion. And I kind of thought, oh, yeah, fair enough. But um, I didn't think, I've been, been really honest, I didn't think he, he was good enough for it. But Desi had other ideas and he, he was spot on. So um, he just had him absolutely peaking on, 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 on Champion Hurdle Day and it worked out super. And then he popped a pair of blinkers on just to make sure. Exactly, nothing. And he was, as as we all know, he was the furthest thing from an ungenuine horse um, that ever hit the race course. But it just helped him concentrate and the way he wanted to ride him, he knew the blinkers would help him concentrate from when he was in front type of thing. And um, yeah, as I said, he was, he was probably one of those horses that wore blinkers that, um, as I say, not that he didn't need him, but he definitely was not an ungenuine horse. And then the following year, of course, that that memorable, memorable race with Paul Carberry on Hutchibald when Carberry was motionless and you were flat out from a fairway. Um, what what are your memories of that? Can you can you remember the the aftermath, the reaction, what you what you and Paul said to each other? Yeah, like I, I remember when when Paul came to me, like I could see Paul absolutely back cantering, but I, I just in the back of my mind, I just had um, Archibald as not a a battler. 
even though he was going so well, I, I, you, you would expect him to, to find something and go by you. But like he got beaten in a in a county hurdle with ten four or ten six on his back the, the year before, and I kind of thought to myself, mm, not sure he's going to get home. But still, you couldn't kind of, you know, geez, I'm sure in in in, in trading in betting, he must have been a million to one on. Um, but. Well, yeah, I could just feel Hardy, you know, head down, really wanting it. And actually, to be honest, Nick, I was nearly more afraid of Bray Finca on the outside because he'd beaten me in a Supreme Novices on War of Attrition and I just knew he would battle and get, get home. So it was just kind of keep head down and, 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 and keep going and hope for the best. And, you know, he pinged the last and, as I said, you could feel him just stretching out and reaching for, for the ground up the hill and... Uh, so it was an amazing finish. It was a, a fantastic race. And I always used to think that when he came out onto the gallops in the morning at Cheltenham, he was a horse that, as you said, he, he might have been anonymous at home, but he would, he'd would he almost grow and fill and seem to love the whole hullabaloo of the of the place. A bit like the way Henry de Bromhead described Manella Rindo as whenever he turned up at Cheltenham, he'd be kicking his box down. Yeah, he, like he, he was a clever horse, as you said. He he knew where he was, and he knew what he had to do. Um, and he was just a different horse there. Even though all the races we won, Pontchartrain, Leprestown, he just, I don't know, he just always felt different in in Cheltenham for 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 whatever reason. Um, he he, as I say, he, I think he knew there was there was going to be a battle, and he he was up for it. He was always up for it. Reflections there from Conor O'Dwyer on the great Hardy Eustace, a, a personal favourite, Dave, and 27 years old. He had a terrific life uh, on the race course and off it. Yeah, he was a real old favourite, um, winner of the uh, the Royal and Sun Alliance, novice hurdle, then, of course, uh, the champion in 2004. It was that dramatic race 12 months later when he beat Archibald. Uh, remember Paul Carberry uh, sitting pretty on the runner-up who eventually uh, didn't find what was required and it was Hardy Eustace who won by a neck. Um, a, 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 a real central figure in that period of National Hunt racing. Also, he gave rise to a, an, an excellent headline. Uh, hardly useless. I can't remember which race uh, that was for, but I tip my hat to the headline writers uh, after that race and certainly to Hardy Eustace himself. He was a, 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 an excellent horse. He gave us so much pleasure. He did. We ought to um, pay our respects to Ron Boss, uh, many of whose uh, greatest exploits as a trainer rather predated me, but possibly didn't predate you. No, they didn't. Um, he was... Uh, certainly operating, you know, he retired in 1997. I started work in 1990. So I did have dealings with Ron Boss. When he retired in 1997, he said, I never used to buy cheap racehorses, but racehorses cheap. And that is certainly borne out by his career. Uh, a classic, Olwyn won the Iris Oaks in Silver Jubilee year of 1977. Uh, two consecutive wins in the Middle Park Stakes. Um Montresor in 1988 and then Bala Cove 12 months later. Only Aidan O'Brien uh, has managed to win consecutive runnings of the Six Furlong Group 1. Subsequent to that, um, a, a very high-achieving trainer and, more importantly, a very well-liked and popular man. OK, there are 29 days in February this year, it being a leap year. On 27 of those evenings, there is racing scheduled. 
That was to the considerable disquiet of the PJA's Dale Gibson in an interview with Sky Sports Racing's Leona Mayer over the weekend. Dale joins me now. Dale, should this have come as a surprise to any of us, given the sort of direction of travel here? Um, Probably not, Nick, um, because we seem to just be in this ever, never-ending circle of of evening fixtures. Um, I must admit that we've been pretty busy since the turn of the year with just general work within the PJA and I happened to run through the calendar 10 days ago and thought wow look what's coming up in in February and it just seemed to be um, a huge number of evening fixtures and having visited Newcastle last night for their uh, for their Sunday evening fixture the third of the six uh, trial Sunday evenings that we've got it suddenly dawned on me the sheer workload of, a, of the, the number of our uh, professional flat riders have currently got. On Saturday, there were two evening fixtures, Kempton and Wolverhampton. One was officially twilight, but they dovetailed in together. Um, and then a number of our riders trekked up to Newcastle um, last night to service that fixture, which was an eight-race card, last race being 830 and I just double-checked the numbers, and it is 27 out of 29, backed up to the fact that in November and December this year, uh, 80% at least of all all-weather fixtures are twilight or evening. And it's just becoming a grind, Nick, for our senior flat members. Um, we're in February. The season's barely got going. The March break has been done away with uh, in the middle of March. We used to have four days off. Unfortunately, that's been done away with. Um, So it's almost like a continuous spiral of very hard work. And I feel very strongly, as do the PJA and a number of senior riders, that we've just got to draw breath and and look at uh, a long-term solution, Nick. Okay, we know why there is a migration towards evening fixtures. It's so that the window of betting opportunities is a larger and longer one, and that is supposed to generate more revenue for the sport. Who have you got to convince to try and change things to to, to the point where where your members will be will be satisfied? Um, this is going to take some time. Uh, I was with George McGrath, who's the CEO of NARS, uh, stable staff, last night at Newcastle, and the head of uh, the racing uh, department, uh, Tom Byrne. He kindly came into the weighing room and discussed this topic with a number of senior riders. He's completely aware of the workload. Um, this may take some time. It's not an overnight... Uh, we don't, won't get a, a, an overnight answer on this, Nick. This is going to take some time to work through. But we have more evening fixtures uh, this year program than we had last year, uh, mentioned mentioned reasons for just just a minute ago um and it just seems uh that we have become uh, a, a, a a nation of evening fixtures um a number of other people have mentioned to me agents valets stalls handlers staff um and partners of our members so it's not just a small number of people who are affected it's probably a bigger number than, than mm-hmm. you and i could envisage and i just feel that look I understand why we have to have evenings, evening fixtures. It's for betting slots. Absolutely. I get I get why we have to have it. But it just seems to be tied in with the sheer workload on the flat of a number of flat riders. And we're probably talking a cohort of about 70. So yesterday, there were 20 licensed jockeys servicing the fixture at Lingfield, which is a below average number because the there were not many runners there, and yet there were 45 servicing the fixture at 
at Newcastle, that's a total of 65 jockeys required to service two Sunday fixtures. And it is that number that we are talking about who are at the coalface mm-hmm. every, every evening for an extended period of time. And please don't think that jockeys have an option of not going. 95% of jockeys literally have to go to keep those rides, whether they're based in Newmarket, whether they're based in Lambourne, or conversely, if there's an evening fixture at Chelmsford and a northern base runner goes down, it'll nine times out of ten be ridden by that regular northern jockey. So the jockeys are traversing the country, um, and it just seems to be a never-ending spiral of evening racing, um, as the numbers are suggesting. Um, I don't have the perfect answer to it. I don't think anybody does right now, but it's something that has probably gathered momentum since November um, with a number of our members. David, that was Dale Gibson from the Professional Jockeys Association. It, it seems that this is a problem that will not go away. This how you balance jockeys' workload against the demand for racing when the bookmaking industry and the racecourses want the racing to be on in order to maximise revenue for the sport. And clearly, with everyone's eyes on the Sunday evening situation, you know, you cover up one hole and the water comes out of another one. You suddenly landed up with 27 evening fixtures uh, spread across a, a, a month, which, yeah, I can understand Dale's point that you know, on the face of it, that's not acceptable. But you kind of left scratching your head thinking, how did nobody see this coming? Indeed, it's that. That's the that's the difficulty for me. What's the name? I've forgotten it, Nick. Of that that game of the at the seaside where you hammer frogs who appear from nowhere, and then another one uh, appears from somewhere else. I think Boris Johnson was well, it's was whack a mole, isn't it? That's the one, not frogs moles. Um, yeah, the the problem with this is that, and 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 it's not just with regard to the fixtures. Is that those of us on the outside are led to believe by the BHA, and we have no reason to disbelieve what they say, that the jockeys have been part of this consultative process. And so if there has been an element of stealth, of moving the tiles round the board, well, that should have been picked up, really, by the jockeys' leaders. I, I'm, I'm certainly um, sympathetic to the view that there's too much racing and the workload on on those at the coalface at the moment is too heavy we're also in a situation where uh, racing is looking to the bottom line and the the data driven changes that have been made are towards um what well, have resulted in in doing what they're doing which is largely keeping the same number of fixtures um i i just feel that they've been part of this process and this is something that should have been picked up at the time and as a result I, I think that you've got to be on top of your brief uh, when you're going through that process and and complaining about it afterwards isn't really an awful lot of use and it's not going to do you very much good as viewers and consumers of the sport are we set for a data revolution well we might be because two horse racing data giants have agreed a landmark merger they are the australasian uh, horse tracking company triple s data and total performance data who've been operating uh, in uk and other markets for some time now and to some considerable acclaim their ceo will duff gordon is with me now uh, will just give me the nuts and bolts of this merger and what it really means for us the, the customer Thanks, Nick. Good morning. Yeah, the nuts and bolts are we've gone from 
uh, operating in eight countries to 11 with the um, merging with Triple S data who bring Australia, Singapore and New Zealand. Um, it's very exciting because we can offer kind of the same standardized um, set of data from in running odds to race course graphics to form data uh, across um, over 100 race courses, which should mean that we can create more and more product and make racing um, more and more exciting on the basis that we've got a vast data set that should appeal to pretty much anybody who's interested in racing. So how is it going to manifest itself specifically for the viewer? If I'm if I'm watching racing from wherever it might be, how am I going to see something that is different, fresh, exciting, engaging? Well, one thing we, we're keen to kind of push this year is is the, the sort of race course um, side of side of this data. It's been available sort of off course on at the races.com, equibase.com, uh, in running odds have been available inside um, William Hill, Labrits Corals, Boyle Sports, Better Victor um, for the last six months. And that's great. It's driving new ways of betting. But of course, you know, the, 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 the race fan who pays, buys a ticket, goes racing. I certainly feel that they should have access to what ASK offers, which is a full on-screen running order, um, so they know where their horse is, they've had a bet on during the race, and why not offer them the live win percentage like Ascot now does, so even if the horse is last, the fact that it might still be the favourite is genuinely interesting whether you've, whether you've backed that horse or not. And that's, you know, lots of race courses use our use our service for that, particularly in Dubai um, and American tracks. UK tracks have have not done that to date, and I think they'll do more of that this year following Ascot's example. Uh, why do you think the UK has been a bit slow on this? Um, I think UK racing has a lot, a lot of things to to get right, um, and it's you know trying hard to do that. Perhaps we've got a culture of um, of relying upon the commentator to provide the full racing colour, and we have you know some of the best commentators in the world in this country. Um, You've also got the fact that the UK uses different, different, different a myriad of different kind of t- technology suppliers to go from the racing to the pictures. So we, we, it can be done. It probably hasn't been so top, top priority, um, but obviously Ascot's taken a leap with it, and I think it's going down very well. So I'd expect others to follow. And as you say, in order to drive meaningful punting, you need meaningful information, and that's an interesting. Um, a philosophical debate as well isn't it the, the the extent to which you um can a- attract people by giving them more rather than attract people by dis- distilling everything to something very very basic yeah exactly so there's a sort of whilst there could be a a kind of um a really interesting emergence of a of a sort of um uh, statistic, deep data, statistical approach to, to racing and betting. There's also just some very simple um, stats that I, you know, any kind of trainer, owner, jockey, breeder can latch onto, which is to make sure the horse is running over the right distance with the right with the right running tactics. We're not here to sort of say that you know racing is going to be saved by you know a vast amount of machine learned kind of modelling. We're, we're here to say that there's there's that if you want it. If you're a machine learner, knock yourself out. But if you are simply a uh, an owner like I used to be, and you and you want to make sure that the horse that you spent a lot of money on uh, is campaigning to his or her best advantage. Have a look at the at the races kind of post race results, or on Equibase, or on our some of the products that we now do. You can you can zero in on how that horse performs. Um, it's bloody difficult to win a horse race, as we all know. So a little bit more information is certainly a good thing.
All right. Thank you to Will. Thank you to all my guests today. David Yates is still here and he has a tip for you for today. We're going to Savile Nick for the eight o'clock race and it's Sybil Charm, a horse who travelled easily to score over seven furlongs at Newcastle last time, comes back to six here. I hope that a two pound rise in the weights will not stop Sybil Charm from following up. Eight o'clock race at Savile Selection number one, Sybil Charm. David, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. And I appreciate that it has been a very tough weekend for an awful lot of you. We will hopefully see you once again tomorrow. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily in association with Timeform, with the Racehorse Owners Association and with the Racing App in partnership with Fitzdares.